Hello. Hello. We both have our new microphones today. Uh, These are strong. They pick up our breathing and everything. Uh-huh. So if y'all be hearing some... We ain't just, running. Just disregard. <laughs> we are not running. Yeah, no, it's just picking up our normal breathing. So, I'm Deidre. I'm Chelsea. And we're giving you... A Million Murders! Okay, (laughs) so we are getting things ready. We are. All right, so today I will be doing The Summerton Man. <gasps> Have you ever heard of him? No. Okay. Mm-mm. Get ready, because it's a mystery. Okay? Yeah, it's unsolved, of course, because that's all I have are unsolved mysteries for us, and I'm sorry, but it's they're so good and intriguing, and you just want to know. So, side note. Mm-hmm. For those of you that don't know, obviously don't know, I'm waiting on my couch to be delivered because it had to get some work done because it was like a spring was popped in the back. They're on their way. They had like nine stops today. And there's this, it's from Ashley's Furniture and they have this tracking thing now online to where you put your phone number in that they have that's on record and then it, it's got the map and it shows the truck and it's like where it's at. And what number stop you are out of the stops they have when they're on their way. And it has like a time frame, like a window. Tell me why. Mom's texting me. She's like, they're on the parkway now. I'm like, I know. Like, I'm tra- I'm also I'm tracking. tracking it. <laughs> but I'm like, girl. Anyways. Oh, my gosh. Okay. That's hilarious. It's like, yes, Mom, I too am doing the tracking. <laughs> I do know how to work the smartphone as well. Cracking up. Okay. So, this is in Australia. We're going On to the great in a favorite <laughs> the sky. Little to the down under. We're going down under today. Okay. December first, nineteen forty eight. Around six thirty in the morning, someone called <laughs> the policy. That's what's in here. The uh-uh. policy. <laughs> Called the police about a body found on Somerton Park Beach near Adelaide, South Australia. A man was found lying in the sand across from a disabled children's home. He was laying with his back and head against the seawall with his legs stretched out and feet crossed. Ooh. So kind of like how I'm yeah, like sitting how, right now. Mm-hmm. But this is, I didn't even know what a seawall was. Like, I don't go to the beach. I didn't know. But it's like literally just a like a wall in the sand uh-huh. or like you know what I mean I don't know no. what it's made out of or nothing but it's like just a wall just like a little wall on the beach like just made out of like stone I guess so mm. I don't know but didn't think to look what, it up no I've never really been to a beach yeah I mean I have but I mean I'm not a beach person Sadly. I'm like it's really not. I mean, I'm to it. I've been to Sorry, a beach, beach in Galveston, Texas, but I mean, yeah, that beach nasty. So yeah, that I'll water. Consider, don't go in I'll the water. I consider like <laughs> that Texas beach like a, yeah, that's the goal. Like I ain't been, in, I ain't been to Florida nothing. Like <clears throat> it's okay. One day, one day. So yeah, so he's laying stretched out, feet crossed, and uh, they thought that he died in his sleep. An unlit cigarette was found on the right collar of his coat, just sitting there. Mm-mm. When they searched his pockets, they found a second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach that hadn't been used, a bus ticket from the city that they weren't sure had been used, an aluminum comb that was made in the U.S., a half a pack of Juicy Fruit gum. I love me some Juicy Fruit. Uh-huh. And that wasn't over in Australia. At this point, like it hadn't been manufactured everywhere or like distributed everywhere. Huh. Army Club pack of cigarettes, which is a British brand of cigarettes. So we've got an American comb, juicy fruit gum, a pack of cigarettes that are from Britain, 
and within that pack of cigarettes, seven of them were Kinsita's cigarettes. And they're a Scottish brand of cigarettes. What's going on? And an almost empty box of British matches. So you've got British, like, British. 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 So you got the British matches and pack of cigarettes with seven Scottish cigarettes in it. Juicy fruit gum. What is happening? That's crazy. Yeah. I was like, this is really weird. I'm putting all of this in here. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> let me just... So, witnesses said on November 30th, they saw a man resembling, resembling, resembling the man in the same spot and position. Mm -hmm. A couple saw him around seven that evening and said they saw him extend his right arm completely out and drop it limply. Another couple saw him from 730 to eight o'clock, at which point the streetlights had come on and they didn't see him move, but it looked like he had changed, changed positions during the time that they were there. So like they see, they wouldn't ever see him move, but it would be like they'd see him and then maybe he'd look like he had moved when they weren't paying attention. I'm just trying to understand why no one like took action. Why would you just, they ended up, well, I mean, cause he was just sitting on the beach. It just looked like a man sitting there. But was his eyes open? That's what I'm trying to understand. Uh uh. He's just sitting there like, like, like asleep. You would think you, somebody would at least check on him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, they saw him just sitting there, but then well, somebody... I feel like if looked, we seen him, we'd be like, is he okay? Bruh. I'd be like, is he dead? Is he dead? Then we'd be like, I feel like we would have been like... We'd be waiting. Like, you would... I don't know. You would just think see. that there would be some kind of person that would think like that. Yeah. Well, they... People were noticing, like, it's kind of weird that he's there, but okay. Yeah. Like, and then they thought that they saw him, but they're saying they thought they saw him changed position so they mm -hmm. may have been like is he dead and then they're like oh wait well his he turned his head a little like okay like from the last time we've looked he's like got his head turned a certain way or his feet may have looked like they moved so they're like okay he's alive <laughs> so the couple talked about how weird it was that he wasn't reacting to the mosquitoes because apparently they're really bad but they figured he was either drunk or asleep and moved on they were like okay one witness told police uh, she saw a man looking down at him from the top of the steps that led to the beach and that the body was in the same position as the police found him. So somebody was going and like checking it out and I guess thought he was just drunk or asleep as well. And they were like, okay. So in 1959, another witness came forward. So we're jumping about this. will jump back and forth a lot mm -hmm. just to let you know. <laughs> So now we're like 11 years later, a witness came forward and said that he saw, he and three other people saw a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders along the beach the night before the body was found. Interesting. Okay. So according to a pathologist, the man looked to be British and around 40 to 45 years old in top physical shape. He was five foot 11 with gray eyes and fair to ginger-colored hair that was slightly gray around his temples. Huh. Uh huh. He had broad shoulders and a narrow waist, mm -hmm. hands and nails that showed no signs of manual labor, big and little toes that met in a wedge shape, like someone who was a dancer or wore boots with pointed toes, hmm. and high calf muscles like someone who wore boots Oh. Or shoes with a high heel or performed ballet. Mm hmm So, yeah. he was dressed in a white shirt, a red, white, and blue tie. So, that's kind of like, I don't know what it looked like. It yeah. could have just been stripes, you know, maybe mm -hmm. not like, yeah, grand old flag. <laughs> like, I was like, America. Um, brown pants, socks, and shoes, a brown knitted pullover with a fashionable gray and brown double-breasted jacket. That looked like it had American tailoring. So he's got a lot on to be yeah. at the beach, first of all. I would have been like, why is this guy got on a double-breasted jacket at the beach? Yeah. Like, it's hot. Well, no, it's not. It's, I forgot. It's, it's December 1st. <laughs> well, I mean. But still, that's a lot. Still, Sandy, ugh. I mean, some places, it doesn't get cold because it just says hot year-round. Yeah. 
I don't so know. It still could have been hot. I mean, who yeah. Knows? I don't know where what Australia is like. Australia? Yeah, this is Australia in December. So now I'm like, okay, so I looked it up and it's like 68 degrees in the, su- in the summer. I thought you were going to say suburbs. No. <laughs> 68 degrees in the winter. Winter, okay. So. So it was warm. pretty odd for him to have all those clothings on. Those clothings. Those clothings. Those, uh, those all clothings. The, all the clothing items on while on the beach. Yeah. Like, doesn't make any sense. So, another weird thing that was going on was all the labels on his clothes were removed. All the labels? Yeah, all the labels on his clothes were removed. And he didn't have a hat. So that sounds like, why does it matter? This was really weird for someone in 1948, apparently. To not have a hat? Yeah, like everyone wore hats. And I started thinking about it, and I was like, my grandfather, he was born in 1917. So by the 40s, you know, he's a grown man. Yeah. I've hardly, I've seen like one picture, one or two of him without a hat on. Oh, really? Yeah. Every, he's wearing a hat in all the pictures I've seen of him except one or two. My dad's dad. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's weird. So, like, and they're from that era. So, I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, my grandfather was rarely pictured without a hat on. So, he's, they're like, where's his hat? Where's his (laughs) hat? They're like, he don't have a hat. My pitpa always wore a hat, too. Yeah. Both my pitpas, actually. Yeah. Like, it's, back then, that was a thing. You didn't see people without a hat. And he also didn't have a wallet on him. He was clean-shaven and had no type of ID on him. This made police suspect he had committed suicide. Oh, I was about to say, that's suspicious. Somebody had shaved him, cleaned him up. Oh, yeah. No, like, he was, like, he looked, they're saying, like, he looked put together. Mm -hmm. Like, he had this coat on. He had all this stuff. Fashionable gray and brown jacket, clean-shaven, tie, but had no ID on him and all this stuff. So, they were like, maybe he committed suicide. Uh, And then... His dental records weren't a match to anyone. Like, they could not hmm. find it, find them anywhere, you know, a match. And like he ain't from there. Yeah. Like, and then you don't know where he's from because he's got 50 different, he's got different like something clothes. from each country yeah. on him. So, yeah. So, it says, uh, the autopsy was performed. They estimated his time of death to be around two in the morning on December 1st. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, his autopsy reported him being normal in every way, except for these things, among others. So, like, what I'm telling you right now is just a small portion of the weird stuff that they found in this autopsy. Because it got so literal, or not literal, but, like, so, um, like, precise because it was stuff from the autopsy. I was, like, having to look stuff up, and I was like, this is going to take me, like two minutes to explain all of this mm-hmm. because it was so many medical terms. So I'm like, okay, we're just going to cut it. You know, I want it on anything. I was, like, I was having to look stuff up like, okay, so that means this and this means that. So, huh? And I was like, wait a minute. I can't. So there was blood mixed with the food in his stomach. Both kidneys were congested and his liver had a great amount of blood in its vessels. His spleen was about three times its normal size. Golly. He had bleeding in his stomach, and he had eaten a pastry about three to four hours before his death, but tests failed to tell if any foreign substance was in his body. So, like, even if he did complete suicide, there was no way to, like, no one knew how. There wasn't anything in his system, and... But all these organs were damaged or, mm-hmm. like, enlarged and blood in them and, you know, all this stuff. So, Dr. Dwyer, the pathologist that did the autopsy, said, I'm quite convinced the death could not have been natural. He believes he was poisoned and said the poison I suggested was a barbiturate, which it's a drug that acts as a nervous system depressant, your central nervous system. So they were used back then to help with anxiety and insomnia, but they're extremely addictive. So they've been replaced with drugs like Valium, 
for those types of symptoms, but they're still used for general anesthesia and epilepsy treatment for acute migraines or cluster headaches, euthanasia, and when they punish someone on the death penalty. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So he was thinking That's an awful strong Yeah. But this was like stuff you could get. Like yeah, because it was Garland back and was on barbiturates. Like that was like the forties. Mm-hmm. Barbiturates were like, oh, you a little anxious? Barbiturate. Uh uh-uh. uh <laughs> They're like, oh, you depressed? Barbiturate. Barbiturate. <laughs> <laughs> your your mother in law's coming over the first time. Barbiturate. <laughs> Down to the bone. Barbiturate. Oh, <laughs> so that was from that was from our other podcast that we had with our friend Sarah screaming sugar and Chelsea had this case and these cops were like well she completed suicide and it was like rolled it a suicide and she had like a a cut on her throat and it was like down to the bone and we were like yeah of course and we were making fun of the cops because we were like down to the bone suicide yes so that was a good throwback for Uh, us goodness yes it was a mess Yes, so this guy thought that, yeah, it would be a barbiturate or dissolvable sleeping pills. Mm. Yes, so. That's not good enough. Oh, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Oh, my God. Sometimes I can't sleep and I'm like, I need something. <laughs> well, apparently these will not stay in your system. He's like, something's up. So, he didn't think the pastry was poisoned, though. Because, you know, oh, they found the pastry yeah. in the system. They uh-huh. were like. Okay, probably not that. Seems like it's fine. Uh, other than that, the coroner wasn't able to come to a conclusion on who this man was or if the man uh, witnesses saw the night before mm-hmm. was him since no one had seen the man's face at that time. Oh. His body was embalmed on December 10th and uh, the police were unable to get a positive ID. That's crazy. I would hate that for myself or, I mean, anybody, obviously. Just not being, being buried and not knowing. Yeah, like, no one knows who I am. Like, that's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you're gone, so it's not like, but still, you were, you were human, you know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like I'm just rambling now. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's probably like, oh, shut up. Oh, my God. No. Your wish is my command. (laughs) Well, that was, I got a little, on my lips. Okay, so on the 14th of January, 1949, staff at the Adelaide Railway Station found a brown suitcase with the label removed that was checked into the station. What is is with these labels? Yeah, like, yeah, another one. Label removed on the brown suitcase, and it was checked into the station cloakroom. So I'm guessing that's like a, you know. No. Like a. Like a closet. Oh, yeah? Like, like you know, back in the day when they had those fancy parties and then... Well, I guess they still do it. Like a coat closet. Whenever you check oh, your yeah, coat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So that's like what this is, but it's at the railway station. I've always wanted to go to a party like that. <laughs> it's like, here's it. my coat. Like, I'm number 23. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, you. 23, please. And you just pick up your coat. You get your fur coat. The your things we get excited about. Oh, my goodness. I know, but it's kind of neat. It's mm-hmm. just, I just want to go to a 40s-esque party. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> so maybe one day that'll happen for us, and we'll get to go to a, to a yes. fancy party. Yes. So let's see. Yeah. So they found this suitcase after 11 a.m. on the 30th of December. No, of November. Because oh. it happened the oh, first. The fir- okay, they gotcha. found this after 11 a.m. on the 30th. So the day before they found his body. Okay. They believed it was the Summerton man's suitcase. Um, so, yeah. So, okay. It's January 14th when they find the suitcase. And it was checked in on, on the 30th on the thirtieth okay. of November. So, the day before they found him is when it was checked in. Okay. But they found it on the 14th. They're like, oh, this is just here. Like, it never got picked up. They believed, yeah, it was the Summerton man's suitcase. It contained a size seven red checked dressing gown, which is one of those fancy looking robes mm-hmm. that they wore back then mm-hmm. that like, oh, I want one so bad. That I would never fit into. Yes, you could. Red felt slippers, 
four pairs of underpants, pajamas, a shaving kit, a light brown pair of pants with sand in the cuffs, an electrician screwdriver, a table knife that had been cut down into a short, sharp instrument, which sounds like a shank to me. Like, that's the way they talked about it. Mm -hmm. A pair of scissors with sharpened points. A small square of zinc that could have been used as a sheath for the knife and scissors. And a stenciling brush that was used for stenciling cargo on merchant ships. Hmm. So, like, you know, when you see those big crates and then they've got that, like, black block letters, Mm -hmm. like, a stencil for that. That's crazy. That's weird. It's, listen. There was also a thread card of Barber brand orange waxed thread. Barber was a British luxe... That's, like, she sewed seashells. Barber was a British luxury brand of clothing that was not available in Australia. So here we go again. We're out of the country. It was the same thread used to repair the lining in a pocket of the pants the Summerton man was wearing. So they're like, okay, this is his suitcase. Yeah. The labels were removed from these clothes as well, but they found the name T. Keen on a tie. Keen on a laundry bag and Keen on an undershirt along with three dry cleaning marks. It's like whoever's doing this is like, it's, they're wanting it to be like a game to see if they can figure it, figure this out. Yeah, like... It's crazy. Everything's removed but these. And so, T. Keen is K-E-A-N-E. Then, just K-E-A-N-E on the laundry bag. But then, K-E-A-N, no E, on the undershirts. So, police thought whoever removed all these tags from the clothing either forgot to remove these or left them on purpose because they couldn't trace the name back to the uh-huh. man. They're like, whatever. Uh, so they searched all the English-speaking countries, but no one with the name T. Keen was missing, and a nationwide check of the dry-cleaning marks also turned up nothing. So, like, they literally can't find anything on this person. At all. It's just a dead end everywhere they go. Is this code case? Yeah. I told you at the beginning it's unsolved. I don't I remember it. hearing it. I don't remember hearing it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm invested. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you get I, can't, I can't wait to find out who did it. Oh, guess what, B? You, <laughs> you ain't know. going to. <laughs> but it does have some good updates. So just like I've, I've been wanting to do this case. And, and then, what year was this? 1948. Yeah, they gone now. They done dead. Probably. Yeah, I mean, Dad was born in '49, and he's about to be 73. So if anybody, oh, well, then or he's about to be 72. Really not that old then. No, like whoever Dad was born in '49. Oh, so, so they could have been like if someone was 20, they like 99 years old. Oh yeah, old. they did. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they ain't, they're probably like the oldest person or alive. Or like 93, and, and they're like, and you know, we know the oldest people alive because like they they broadcast it like this is the oldest woman in the world. Yeah, like what if it's her? <laughs> That's the murder. She's just like living it up like, <coughs> I once killed a man back in 1940. I'm just kidding. Oh I'm not gosh. saying she did. <laughs> I want to the oldest woman in the world killed the Summerton man. So, yeah, it's just like a whole thing. Like, the person who did this probably is in their 90s or 100 something years old, gone or alive. Like, they're old as dirt. <laughs> so, who knows? But, um, no, there were some new uh, discoveries in the case. So that's why I was kind of like, oh, I'm definitely doing it now because I didn't even know about these. So we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. So an inquest into the man's death conducted by Coroner Thomas Cleland took place a few days after the discovery of the body, but was put on hold until June 19th. Nope. June 17th. 1949. Cleland, as the investigating pathologist, re-examined the body and made a number of discoveries. The man's shoes were very clean and appeared to have been recently polished, rather than in the condition expected of a man who had apparently been wandering around the streets all day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get a new pair of shoes and you're like, ooh, and then you start scuffing them yeah. on the bottom because you've been... So... They're like polished, perfect. And also he's been on the beach. So you think all that sand rubbing would, you know, make it all scuffed up on the bottom or something. But apparently it did not. 
and then he added that this evidence fit in with the theory that the body may have been brought to the beach after the man's death accounting for the lack of evidence of vomiting and convulsions which are two main physiological reactions to being poisoned so he's like this makes oh, sense yeah. like his clothes look you know I was about to say I know I know that was not all I seen your I was I was like why is it not going any further I'm using my mom's iPad to read the story and it just stopped and I was like I thought she was at the end of the page I was like um excuse me I was like where's the rest of it okay but it started working now so Cleland speculated that as none of the witnesses could positively identify the man that they had saw the previous night as the same person that was discovered the next morning, mm -hmm. there was a possibility the man had died somewhere else and had been dumped. Uh, yeah, he said that this was purely speculation as all the witnesses believed it was definitely the same person mm -hmm. as the body was in the same position, you know. Yeah. They saw him and they're like, this is the same guy. Um, he also found no evidence indicating of the identity of the deceased. So, like, still don't know who it is. Nobody can find out who he is. So, Cedric Stanton Hicks, the professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide, testified that of a group of drugs, versions of a drug in the group he called number one, and in particular number two, were extremely toxic in a small oral dose that would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to identify, even if it had been suspected in the first place. So there's these two drugs and he's like, mm -hmm. these could be the ones that were used to poison him because they're pretty much undetectable. Mm -hmm. So he gave Cleland, the pathologist, this is during like court or whatever, um, a piece of paper with the names of two drugs, which was entered as exhibit C the names were not released to the public until the 1980s as at the time they were easy to get by everyday people. Just 40 years later. Yeah. They were like, mm, because back then if he said them, which I'm about to tell you what they are, I'll just tell you what they are right here. Um, they were easy to get by everyday people from a chemist without the need to give a reason for the purchase. Mm -hmm. uh, they were digitalis and strophanthem. Strophanthin. Yeah. So after, so yeah, so these were just easy access. So he didn't want to tell because he was like, if I say these two out loud, anybody can go buy them and just start poisoning people left yeah. and right. Like that's like when they didn't want to tell how you make meth. I mean, it's a good thing that they were smart about that because some people would be doing stuff. Yeah. He like was saying like, stuff and then like, probably shouldn't have said that and like, then, like stuff start happening like mm -hmm. <laughs> like all you gotta do is get some eye drops to murder somebody <sighs> what and then everybody's like yeah so yeah digitalis and strophanthin were two that were just just easy to get and he was like we can't tell people or else they're gonna start yeah. poisoning everyone so after the inquest a plaster cast was made of the man's head and shoulders with no way to identify this man or find out his cause of death, police believe this case would stay a mystery forever. <laughs> there's there's Harlan. He he's like, like, I he heard the like thunder. thunder. It's thunder and now he's getting a little anxious, so you're probably hearing him snorting. Okay. So around the time the autopsy was being done on the body, they found a tiny piece of rolled up paper with the words Taman should printed on it. It was sewn into a fob pocket, which is that tiny pocket right above the jean pocket. I was going to say, I wonder if that's that little baby uh -huh. pocket that you're like, what is this for? It's called a fob pocket and they were created to hold pocket watches. Yes. So I was I like, I knew that. Did you? Yeah. I had no clue. I was like, this is so interesting. Uh -huh. I learned that. A few years ago. I thought that was neat. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. So, 
public librarians called officers to translate the text. Mm -hmm. It's a phrase that means ended or finished. And it's found on the last page of Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. <coughs> Khayyam. I forgot how to say the last name. But it's like a book mm -hmm. called Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. I think Khayyam. So don't, please don't. I'm trying. <laughs> uh, the paper's other side was blank. Police started an Australian-wide search to find the copy of the book the piece of paper was torn from. A picture of the paper was released to the press. They eventually found the copy of the Rubiat that the piece of paper was torn from. A man showed the police an edition of the book translated and published by a company in New Zealand. Another so here we go again. Another country. Uh, so, Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean, who led the initial investigation, wouldn't release the name of the man who came forward, and he's never been identified. This he, is stressing me out. <laughs> he did say that the man hadn't considered that the book was connected to the case until he saw the article in the newspaper. There is some confusion on how the book was found. One article says... The book was found about a week or two before the body was found. How about a week ago? Detective Jerry Feltus, who dealt with the case once it was considered a cold case, says the book was found just after the Summerton man was found. The timing of when the book was found is important because based on the mm -hmm. tickets found in the suitcase, he arrived in Adelaide the day before he was found on the beach. If the book was found a week or two before... That would mean the man visited earlier and came back or had been staying in the area longer than everyone thought. Mm. Yes. Most accounts say the book was found in an unlocked car, either in the rear floor well or on the back seat. So, because like the guy who turned it in, like he was like, I don't know where this came from. Like this was literally sitting in my car and was like, because like, People would just have their windows rolled down. So it was like someone just threw the book back there. Okay. So. <laughs> the theme of the Rubiat is that you should live life to the fullest and have no regrets when it ends. This is where police started thinking it could have been a suicide by poison. But no other evidence corroborated that theory. They ran microscopic tests on the paper from the man's pants and it showed it was torn from the book. In the back of the book, they found faint indentations acting as five lines of text in capital letters. The second line was struck out. The fourth line is very similar, 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 <laughs> similar to the second. So it seems like they missed, messed up the code. Good Lord. The letters on the lines were WRG. O A B A B D. Then the second line was M L I A O L with the strike through it. The okay. third line is W T B I M P A N E T D. The fourth line is M L I A B O A I A Q C. And the final and fifth line is I T T M T S A M S T G A B. <laughs> so. Like, doesn't make any sense. No, I don't. That's why I just kind of rambled through them because, like, it's not, you know, it's just, like, a bunch of gibberish at this point. Like, yeah. it's just words. It's just letters. Will it come together? <clears throat> Code oh. experts <laughs> were called in at the time to decipher the lines but couldn't crack the code. In 1978, an ABC journalist asked the Australian Department of Defense cryptographers to analyze the text. They said it would be impossible to give a correct answer to the code. It wasn't long enough to be an encrypted message you could get a clear message from. A phone number was found in the back of the book. The number belonged to a nurse named Jessica, or Joe Thompson. She lived very close to the beach, uh, and when she was interviewed by the police, she said she didn't know the Summerton man or why he'd have her number, or choose to visit her suburb on the night of his Somebody's death. Somebody's lying. Somebody is lying. Like, and who is it? Who? 
I ain't never. Is it? I ain't never had a case like this stressed me out like this. Girl. So. Yeah, she's like, I don't know, I don't know. You picked a good code case. Everyone's going to be like, what? You're going to have to start looking this up because it's crazy. She also said sometime in late 1948, an unidentified man had attempted to visit her and even asked her next-door neighbor about her. Jerry Feltis, I mentioned earlier, actually wrote a book on the case, and he talks about how she was either being evasive or just didn't want to talk about it when he interviewed her in 2002. This is Joe. Yeah. Um, he thinks she knew the Summerton man. Her daughter, Katie, was interviewed in 2014 on television, and she believes her mother knew the man as well. So everybody's like, I, I think she knew him. Yeah. She's just lying. <laughs> yes, like it's a mess. So in 1949, Jessica asked that the police not keep a permanent record of her name or release it to the press. <laughs> now you know she's really lying. Mm-hmm. She said it would be embarrassing or harmful to her reputation to be linked to the case. Hmm. The police agreed, and it hurt the investigation in the long run. In the news, books, and other places the case was discussed, she was given a false name. In 2010, Jerry was given permission from Jessica's family to reveal her true identity. She passed away in 2007. Jerry learned while writing the book that her family had no clue she was connected to the case. He agreed to keep her identity a secret or anything that could give her identity away a secret. It was also thought her real name could be the, dis the, the decryption key for the code. So they're like, maybe mm -hmm. we can figure this out. When she was shown the plaster cast bust of the man, Jessica said she couldn't identify who he was. She looked like she was going to faint after looking at the bust and wouldn't look at it again. Oh. Jessica told detectives she was working at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney during World War II and that she had owned a copy of Rubiet. In 1945, at the Clifton Gardens Hotel in Sydney, she had given the copy to an Army lieutenant named Alf Boxel, who was serving his time in the water transport section of the Royal Australian Engineers. After the war had ended, she had moved to Melbourne and got married. She received a letter from Boxel and let him know that she was married. But there's no evidence that Boxel had any contact with Jessica after 1945 when she mm -hmm. gave him the book. After speaking with Jessica, police suggested that Boxel was the Summerton man. But in 1949, Boxel was found in Sydney and the final page of his copy of the Rubiet was intact with the words Taman should still in the book. Boxel was now working in the maintenance section at the Randwick Bus Depot and wasn't aware of the link between him, Jessica, and the Summerton man. So, this book, her Rubiette copy, is not the one that it came from. So, there have been some theories that the Summerton man was a spy. Apparently, there are two sites close to Adelaide that were places of interest to a potential spy. The Radium Hill Uranium Mine and the Woomera Test Range, which is a military research facility. The man's death also happened around the time Australia was reorganizing their security agencies and would eventually lead to a crackdown on Soviet espionage in Australia. Mm -hmm. So, like, they're like, no, Russian spies, like, y'all ain't gonna do it. Okay, so another theory deals with Alf Boxel. Apparently, he was involved in some intelligence work during and right after World War II, and in a 1978 television interview, he was asked if Jessica knew he was working in the intelligence unit. He said she wouldn't have known unless someone else told her, which I'm wondering, well, who all knew he was a spy or did intelligence work, whatever. Uh -huh. He was just like, unless somebody told her, who was going to tell her? Who else knew? I don't know. So he was then asked if the Summerton man's death could have an espionage connection. And he replied, it's quite a melodramatic thesis, isn't it? So he doesn't seem to believe it's connected to any spy work, but who knows? He might have been ordered to get rid of the Summerton man. I was getting ready to say. Mm -hmm. If he was a spy from another country. Uh -huh. So doesn't that sound silly? No, it don't. Spies you on spies. <laughs> Take him out. Take him out. Like, kill him. 
1949, the Somerton Man was buried in Adelaide's West Terrace Cemetery, where the Salvation Army held a service for him. Well, that was nice. Yes. It, it really was. I'm Listen, glad he got that, you know. Yeah, like he gets to be, you know, buried and stuff. And the South Australian Grandstand Bookmakers Association. I'm like, that name is so extra. I was like typing it's it ex- like. It's just about as extra as this freaking case. <laughs> yes, like just I'm like, What's everything. Going on? Yes, my lord. So, <laughs> so they're the ones who paid for the service to save the man from a pauper's burial, which is a funeral for someone who's poor or homeless that's paid for by the local authority. Mm-hmm. So, years after he was buried, flowers began being left at his grave. Police questioned a woman seen leaving the cemetery, but she claimed she knew nothing of the man. So somebody's going and putting flowers on his grave, but no one could identify him after they put that bust in the newspaper, but somebody's putting flowers on his grave. It could just be somebody being nice, but... Yeah, it could be, but then again, it could be... (laughs) Oh, Joe. I don't know who he is. Jolene. Jolene. (laughs) Listen, it gets better. It gets better. Not right now, but later. It'll get like, she comes back. Two hours later. (laughs) Two hours later, we find out some more stuff. Okay, so around the same time, Ina Harvey, the receptionist from the Strathmore Hotel, which is across from the railway station, said a strange man had stayed in room 21 or 23 for a few days around the time of the Somerton man's death and had checked out November 30th. 1948. Mm-hmm. She remembered he spoke English and was only carrying a small black case, similar to one a musician or doctor might carry. When an employee looked inside the case, he told Harvey he found something that looked like a needle. Circling back to the code in the back of the book, it's been over 70 years and no one has been able to crack the code found in the back of the book. Still? Still, watch it not even be a code. It's probably just like, ooh, let's do this so they think it's a code and it's really gonna mess with them. No, <laughs> and it's seventy years. It says mil- I found out military, naval intelligence, mathematicians, and amateur code crackers have all tried but failed. That's crazy. I'm telling you. In 2004, now retired detective Jerry Feltus said. The final line could stand for It's Time to Move to South Australia, Mosley Street. A 2014 analyst by computation linguist John Reeling strongly supports the theory that the letters consist of the initials of some English text, but he can't find a match for those in any literature he searched and said the letters were likely written as a form of shorthand not as a code. So the original text will likely never be determined. We need Sheldon. Yeah. Sheldon, help us. So in 1978, so this is 30 years later, mm-hmm. ABC TV ran an episode through Inside Story called The Summerton Beach Mystery, where reporter Stuart, Stuart Littlemore, Stuart Little, <laughs> <laughs> uh, investigated the case, including interviewing Boxel. The one that she had met, Joe, the girl had met, that Boxel guy? Yes. Yeah, so he interviewed him, who had no new information, and Paul Lawson, who made the plaster cast of the body. And he, Paul, refused to answer a question about whether anyone had positively identified the body or not. He just wouldn't say. What, boy? Interesting. I'm like, what is... Very, 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 very interesting. Like, what is going on? Why isn't anyone saying anything? Who knows? So, in 1994, John Harbour Phillips, Chief Justice of Victoria and Chairman of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine... Victoria. (laughs) Victoria. Reviewed the case to determine the cause of death and concluded that digitalis, one of the suspected drugs used in the Somerton man's death was in fact most likely the drug. So like back in the day when old boy was like, I won't tell you what they are, but yeah. one of them's is digitalis. Like that's what it is. He's pretty sure that's what killed him. Um, 
Phillips pointed out the organs were enlarged, which is consistent with being poisoned with digitalis, the lack of evidence of natural disease, and the absence of anything seen macroscopically, mm. which could account for the death. So he's like, this is right on the money. Yeah. The South Australian Police Historical Society. Good Lord. I mean. Good Lord Almighty. These, why is everything so extra? So, yes, the South Australian Police Historical Society has the plaster bust. It contains strands of the man's hair. This is the only way to test his DNA uh-huh. since the embalming formaldehyde destroyed much of his DNA. Wow, yeah. Yep. So, other key evidence no longer exists, like the brown suitcase, which was destroyed in 1986. Why? <laughs> Why are people destroying stuff? Oh, I don't know, because they ain't trying to get caught, and obviously it worked. Yeah, well, I mean, this was like almost 40 evidence years later, be- but they're like, we don't need it anymore. Why would we need this suitcase in this cold case? Evidence always gets destroyed. It's like the- there's always some kind of evidence getting destroyed. Every time, people are like, oh, we don't need it. Yes, you do. Why are you getting rid of it? And then some witness statements also have disappeared from police files over the years. Where are they going? Like, keep up with stuff. Somebody then sat it down on a stack, and, and now it's just gone. Crazy, 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 crazy. Like, pay attention. I'm just like, bruh, like, what? How are you just throwing <laughs> stuff away? <sighs> so, in March, we're just over to another jump, 2009, a University of Adelaide team led by Professor Derek Abbott began trying to solve the case through cracking the code and asking that his body be exhumed for DNA testing. His investigations have led to questions concerning the assumptions police had made about the case and he also tracked down uh, that barber wax um, thread of that time period and found packaging variations. This may provide clues as to which country it was purchased in. The investigation shown that the autopsy reports of 1948 and 1949 were missing. And the, so they're gone too. They're gone too. The autopsies are gone. And the Bar Smith Library's collection of Cleveland's notes, which is that one, <coughs> excuse me, that one pathologist, don't contain anything on the case. Yeah. Um, Macy Hinberg, professor of anatomy at the University of Adelaide, examined images of the Summerton man's ears and found that his Simba, your upper ear hollow, uh-huh. is larger than his cavum, the lower ear hollow. So this one is bigger than this one. Yeah. So this upper part of your ear that's like tiny. Mm-hmm. compared to the lower part is flipped on him and that's like a feature possessed by only one to two percent of the caucasian population the caucasian population not like like all white people in the world that's crazy yeah so like one to two percent of all the white people in the world is still a lot of people but yeah. it's on a small scale, but like, it's so rare. And so they were like, that's really weird. Okay. Then Abbott consulted with dental experts who said that the Summerton man had hypodontia or dontia. I don't know, whichever one. It's a rare genetic disorder where you're missing certain adult teeth, adult, adult teeth, adult teeth, which I'm pretty sure I have. I was born without like eight teeth. That I'm supposed to have. A- adult teeth that just were not there. Teeth that are turned around like 180 degrees. Don't know. Don't know what's happening, but you know, it's fine. His incisors, which are the two teeth beside your two front teeth, uh-huh. were missing. So he had canines. So it's like you have your two front teeth, then you got your pointy uh-huh. canine teeth right beside it. And it looks very odd. Like when you see it, you know. It's like, okay, so I guess the hypodontia or dontia is when you're missing certain adult adult teeth and his adult teeth that were missing were his incisors. So that makes up about 2% of the population. So he's just like rare as hell. So in June 2010, 
Abbott was able to get a picture of Jessica Thompson's oldest son, Robin. Okay, so there's a Joe, old Joe, the nurse, who's mm-hmm. like, I don't know him. It clearly showed that he had the same ear hollow sizes, with the top ones being bigger than the lower hollow, and he was missing those two incisors as well. The chances of this happening are 1 in 10 million and 1 in 20 million for the ear hollow. And the, So are they saying, are they trying to say that they're kin? Yeah, like the chances of them not being related is like 1 in 10 million and 1 in 20 million. Oh my. Did oh. you hear that? Yeah, they heard it. I see it on the little recording. I jumped. That was close. It sounded like... Yeah. There was a th- a thorn. There was a thunderstorm. There was a thorn. There was a thunderstorm not too long ago in around here somewhere, and it caught a house on fire. Like it, it like lightning struck the lightning house. Lightning struck a house, and it caught it on fire. That's crazy. Like I can't believe that. I mean, I can believe it. It happens all the time, but you just don't hear about it as often. Yeah. But yeah, that noise y'all heard was lightning. Thunder. I mean, thunder. Thunder. But I'm pretty sure the lightning... You probably still hear it. (laughs) Yeah. So, back to this real quick. Oh, Lord. Y'all, the power go go Rattling dishes in here, too. Oh, Lord. Okay. In November 2013, (laughs) (laughs) relatives of Justin... Oh, yeah, Justin. So, that's the name... I don't know if it's her real name or her fake name, but that's Joe. Yeah. I forgot when I said that he was using an alias, either Jessica is the alias or Justin is. So who knows? I don't know. It got so confusing. Y'all, it's just like, I know you hear it. Uh, So relatives of Justin gave interviews to the Channel 9 Current Affairs Program 60 Minutes. So Mm -hmm. Australia has a 60 Minutes too. It's like everywhere. Kate Thompson, the daughter of Jessica and Prosper Thompson, said that her mother was the woman interviewed by the the police (laughs) and that her mother had told her that she had lied to them. You know, okay, you know what I feel like? I feel like we're in the middle of World War, like, two, and it's just (laughs) happening around us and we're just chilling, like. Yeah, we're just. Like, okay, it's fine. Everything's fine. It's just... Everything's being blown up around us. Yeah, like, no no problem here until the lights turn out. That's how dedicated we are to you guys. Yes. Pushing through the the war. Ooh. Pouring out. Well. Okay, anyway. So. So, yeah. Kate, this is Jessica's daughter, and Prosper, Uh which is Jessica's husband, uh, said that Yeah, her mom was the woman that was interviewed by the police, and she had told her that she lied to them, like she told her daughter this. Jessica did know the identity of the Semerton man, and his identity was also known to a higher level than the police force. Wow. Uh Thompson's father had died in 1995, and her mother died in 2007, like we said. She suggested that her mother and the Summerton man may have both been spies, noting that Jessica Thompson taught English to migrants and could speak Russian, although she would not disclose to her daughter where she began, like, where she learned it from or why. She knows Russian. That's crazy. Like, what... What, 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 what? So then Robin Thompson's widow, Roma Egan, and their daughter, Rachel Egan, also appeared on 60 Minutes. So Robin is the son of supposedly Jessica and Prosper, but he's the one who's also has the missing incisors mm-hmm. and the funny ears. That happens like, yeah, super rare. Like the fact that. He has this, and the Summerton man, and his mother was involved somehow. It's like, that's his son. That's his daddy. So, just pretending like you don't hear all that loud rain. Um, yeah, so they went on there. And they were suggesting that the Summerton man was Robin's father, and therefore Rachel's grandfather. The Egan said they completed a new application with the Attorney General, John Rao, 
to have the Somerton man's body exhumed and DNA tested. Abbott also wrote to Rao, the power just went out. <laughs> I cannot, I cannot deal. It does that all the time when, we, when it storms. It goes off and comes right back on. Yeah, like the power went out and it went back on. We're just, <laughs> we just keep on rolling. Okay, good thing nothing is operated by power. Wait, shit. No, 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 we're good. Sorry, I said the S word. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, yeah, they want the Summerton's man's body tested, DNA tested. Abbott also wrote to Rao in support of the Egan, saying the exhumation for DNA testing would be consistent with federal government policy of identifying soldiers in war graves to bring closure to their families. Kate Thompson opposed the exhumation as being disrespectful to her brother. What? Who cares? Uh, uh, what? Wait, how? How is it disrespectful to your brother? Because at this point, he's dead. Yeah. We gonna find out who his real dad is. And who his child's grandfather really was. Like, but It's disrespectful okay. to him that no one's, like, claiming him, like, yeah, like claiming a nobody. His like, po possible, potential, how could it not be like, father? Crazy. Like, what and also y'all spilling all y'all mama's tea saying that she lied and she was probably a spy a russian spy living in australia so y'all done threw everybody dead under the bus so i don't understand why this would be an issue but okay you know i don't know them like that sorry family if they ever hear this <laughs> probably won't but it's fine <laughs> so in october 2011 as interest in the case resurfaced Attorney General John Rao refused to exhume the body, stating there needs to be public interest reasons that go well beyond public curiosity or broad scientific interest. Like there's got it. We need more, more of a reason than just everybody wants to know how the mystery ends. So Feltus said he was still contacted by people in Europe who believed the man was a missing relative, but did not believe in, did not believe in exhumation and finding the man's family grouping would provide answers to relatives as during that period so many war criminals changed their names and came to different countries uh -huh. so while investigating the case abbott the professor from university of adelaide mm -hmm. that's like done all this other end stuff yeah. he married rachel the daughter of roma egan and robin thompson huh. yeah so he married the I mean, I'm going ahead and saying it. He married the Summerton man's granddaughter. Granddaughter. Yeah. In 2017, Abbott announced those three hairs that could be used for DNA testing um, had been, and they were submitted for analysis to the Australian Center for Ancient DNA at the University of Adelaide Processing. Uh, nope. University of Adelaide. Processing the <laughs> results could take up to a year. So it's 2017. While most of the DNA is degraded, in February 2018, the university team were able to get an analysis of the DNA from the hair sample and come to find out the Summerton man belonged to a haplogroup that only 1% of Europeans belong to. Now, haplogroup, you've seen that on um, your 23andMe. Mm -hmm. It's like where you come from, where you derive from, like the very first one of you, the motherland of you. <laughs> like... So, my haplogroup is in Asia. So, somebody in Asia was just, like, my earliest ancestor. It's crazy. I don't know where mine's at. I don't know. I don't remember what it said, but... Mm-hmm. So, his haplogroup, 1% of Europeans belong to it. But this DNA is mitochondrial DNA, so it is only inherited through your mother's line. So, they can't use that DNA and Rachel Egan's to link her to the Summerton man since it would have been her father who was related to him. So, like, if it had been her mom, if it had been the Summerton man's daughter, mm -hmm. and she was the granddaughter, then they would have been able to take it because it's mitochondrial DNA. Oh. But since it's her father who they think was related to him... They can't do anything with it because you can only do from like your mother to another child through their mother. Uh -huh. So I got all jacked up. It was like, well, we can't use that. Uh, oh, 
jacked up. All jacked up. So, in October 2019, Attorney General Vicki Chapman granted approval for his body to be exhumed and extract DNA for analysis. Mm. Everyone interested in the analysis agreed to cover the cost. They're like, we'll all pay for it. We don't care. We want to know. A potential granddaughter's DNA is planned to be compared to the unknown man's to see if it's a match, which I'm assuming that's Rachel. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know why it wouldn't be. Uh, the exhumation happened on May 19th, 2021. Oh, like, it just happened, y'all. Like, three months ago. Yes. Almost. The remains were deeper in the ground than they originally thought. His body was exhumed as part of Operation Persevere and Observation. Operation Persevere and Operation Persist, which are investigating historical unidentified remains in South Australia. The authorities said that they. I'm near the end. Come on, come on, come on. The authorities said they intended to take DNA from the remains if possible. Doc. You know where my high blood group is? Where? Eastern Africa. The motherland, honey. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, eventually we were all supposed to be from there, all back somewhere, but like your haplo group is there. It's the only one. That's that's that 1% 150,000 years ago. Because aren't you just literally 1% African descent on your little DNA? It may be more now if you've, because it constantly updates. Everybody go do 23andMe. You're going to find out all kinds of stuff about your DNA that you didn't know about. It's pretty cool. Um, Dr. Ann Coxon of Forensic Science South Australia said, The technology available to us now is clearly light years ahead of techniques that were available in the 1940s. And that tests would use every method at our disposal to try and bring closure to this enduring mystery. So... I mean, it's crazy. All the weird stuff, what he was wearing, like who, we still won't know what happened to him. Yeah. But we're pretty sure he was poisoned. His tags were all cut out. It's, so it's really sounding like he's a spy and he's just like was found out or something and got murdered, was murdered and poisoned with that digitalis. It was easy to get. So it wasn't like. What do you need that digitalis for? Like, just take it. <laughs> it's fine. So, I mean. Sad. Yeah. And I bet you. I mean. It's going to come out that Robin was his son. He had the high calves to. Oh, oh. I didn't put this in here. Robin, with the big ear at the top and the little at the bottom. And the canines, just like the Summerton man. Well, guess what? He also had high calves. Just like the Summerton man. And guess what? Oh, he was a ballet dancer. Uh-huh. Robin was, yeah. So, uh-huh. what? That's his daddy. Mm-hmm. You are the father. That's his daddy. What's his daddy? Crazy. So that's the story of the Summerton man, and we are getting like something's going to come to a close soon. Like we're gonna know for sure. proof in the pudding. Uh Proof in the pudding. (laughs) That, you know, but that's his daddy, because we all know it is. There's no way it's not. Well, at least, I just want to know who killed him. Yeah, and it's like, we're never going to. But we ain't ever going to find out. We might as well. (laughs) We got to move on. Like, is that the, we got to take it from cold case files to Maury. (laughs) Like, (laughs) We trying to figure out who his daddy was. Because it just seems like it's a spy and somebody just killed him and moved on. It probably mm-hmm. was Boxel. So, there is that. That is it. So, you all can send your questions, concerns, um, requests to amillionmurders at gmail.com. And you can also like us on, well, follow us on Instagram at Amelia Murders. Yes. And then 
see the pictures that we post for each case we do and you can also share our Instagram with your friends and your family and we have a Facebook page you can go follow yes you can share it with your friends and family and if you have any requests like and if you don't want to email you can always message us on Instagram Facebook like type it out on the page yeah if you have any cases you want us to cover Anything specific? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so I know there's a couple that were supposed to kind of get off the ground a little bit, so we will try to do that uh-huh. and everything. And, um, yeah, I guess that is that is it for now. So, thank you for tuning in. We hope you come back for a, a million, million more. more. Bye. Bye.